Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I'm delighted to talk again to Saklane Chowdhury. You're most welcome, sir. Assalamu alaikum, Paul. How are you doing? Good to have you back, sir. Good to have you back. Um, you may remember from before, Saklane is doing his PhD in physics at the University of Oxford. Three months ago on Blogging Theology, he appeared in a video entitled God and Physics, talking with a Muslim physicist at Oxford University, which to date has been watched by over 60,000 viewers, which is great. Um, today, uh, Saklane has kindly uh, come on to discuss some of the challenges facing Muslim youth living in the West. So, Sakin, as you talk to Muslim youth at your university and elsewhere, what are some of the principal challenges they face? Well, firstly, Paul, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Thank you for having me on again. Uh, last time was a, was a great experience. It felt like a conversation more than a, an interview, which is which yeah. was amazing. And uh, yeah. and to I, many many people actually reached out to me afterwards. Uh, and I did my best to reach out to them and if I didn't do that adequately I apologize if these people are watching now but I actually made some wonderful contacts and a few friends through this platform so I owe uh, a lot to you Paul thank you very much that's really great uh, that's really great, great to hear that that the impact of the video extended uh, beyond the actual recording itself into further discussions with the people that's really great thanks for doing that as well Sakhalin no no alhamdulillah so uh, you asked a question about mm. uh, and and always I, I speak from a personal point of view rather than uh, a point of view where I would say I have knowledge or great knowledge about these things. These are personal anecdotes and experiences and, and some of my own some of my own thinking. But uh, if there's any shortcomings in that, I hope people don't think it reflects on our religion as a whole. Um, but to begin, I'd probably say, <clears throat> broadly speaking, I've found... Um, people who struggle with the idea of God or Islam in general, uh, and if we're talking about the Muslim youth, uh, broadly fall into two categories. Uh, one, who have philosophical, metaphysical issues, uh, and the second category are those who have uh, moral issues, I would say. Mm. So uh, there are a group of people, uh, and I would say they're in the majority in my experience, who, like many of us, are susceptible to the uh, desires that we have in life uh, to do things that Allah has prohibited for us uh, in, the, in the conceptualization of our religion in Islam. Uh, and so in youth, it can often seem like we have all these prohibitions and rules and why should we obey them when it's so much more fun um, to use an analogy, everyone kind of knows that a donut tastes really, really good, but to go up in the morning after Fajr and go for a run or something, we know is quite painful. Yet all the studies and anyone who does either of those on a regular basis um, can tell you that one is very clearly better for us than the other, but the other is far more appealing. Mm. Uh, so that's a basic thing that applies to all human beings. Uh, there are things we want to do, uh, and things we should do. Uh, and in the modern world, we are far more encouraged uh, to do those things uh, and indulge in those things that we want to do. Uh, and our desires have become ever more uh, present in our day-to-day -day activities. Mm -hmm. And so young people are particularly susceptible to that because youth has a certain folly to it, doesn't it? We, 
we think we're immortal and and we don't contemplate death and such well most of us don't contemplate such grave things until um that much usually yeah much later and usually far too late some would say mm. uh, until the, the consequences have have appeared right before us uh, and so that's one category of, of muslim youth that i meet uh, and i like i said the majority and then the the other the other side of it which is the side that i previously belonged to if you'd like to use that kind of group though it's not a hard group but just it was probably those people who um more inclined to asking difficult questions about the religion uh, when doubts appear to them uh, because they're inclined to uh, academic or logical thinking and these are some of the people i encounter in oxford although you'd be surprised the majority i would say are still on the kind of moral side of things rather than the philosophical side of things right. uh, and they just have issues with the idea of faith belief in the unseen um mm. again growing up in the west where we have a lot of kind of post-enlightenment thinking and post-modern thinking they've subconsciously absorbed all of all of these these things as just a given it's just you should these this yeah. is the truth or yeah. or ironically in postmodernism, the lack of truth <laughs> yes. uh, and this is the way you should think and then they apply that without questioning it perhaps deeply enough to mm. something like islam to religion uh and the whole thing starts to unravel in their minds and then at the same time if you're from a particular kind of background which a lot of muslim youth are which is probably second or third generation immigrant backgrounds your parents and those people around you i've mentioned this before perhaps aren't best equipped to answer such challenging questions you have to go elsewhere and uh, the human ego, once it latches onto an idea, becomes starts to attach itself to the idea. So mm -hmm. once you start to say you don't believe in God, or you're not a Muslim, or these things start to become part of your personality, uh, then we are indeed, uh, there's always confirmation bias. So we look for people who confirm our ideas uh, mm -hmm. by and large, rather than those who challenge us. And, and right. we can kind of... <clears throat> become self-fulfilling in the way we read and think yeah. and who we read and think so though broadly i would say those are the two categories i see yeah. that's very very helpful actually thank you for that but one thing that surprises me you didn't say uh, which is the uh the usual uh problem that's wheeled out to criticize any theistic religion and that is the problem of suffering mm. uh there's a big issue certainly intellectually and in many people's minds but you're focusing more on the, the moral struggles uh, and kind of a materialist framework that uh, affects uh, us all living in a in the, in the west like this but uh, is the problem of suffering as a, a, an intellectual or a moral problem for many people yeah so i can answer that question in two ways from a personal point of view and perhaps from uh, an extrapolation to the more broad ideas that you might see in society i think the problem of ev evil traditionally is a, a more christian problem than it is a, a muslim problem um, the Islamic conception of God is more all-encompassing than the Christian conception of God in, in many of the basic creeds. Uh, and we, and typically speaking, Islam has answered the question of suffering, actually right from the get-go, it's mentioned in the Quran many times, uh, life is a test, a trial, uh, and there are many narrations of the Prophet, peace be upon him, uh, 
which suggests that God is often on the side of those who are suffering. God is with the brokenhearted. Mm. Um, and so Islam in general has a, I would actually say the most comprehensive way of dealing with suffering. I mean, you can, there are better articles and books that explain this than I will briefly here. Yakin Institute, for example, have a fantastic article. Uh, you mentioned the divine reality earlier and I mentioned it last time. There's a fantastic chapter. Yeah. Well, as you, as you mentioned it, we'll uh, give it a plug. Uh, the divine reality, God, Islam, and the mirage. I like that word, the mirage, the illusion of atheism by Hamza Zorsis, of course. And uh, I've actually been reading this book for the first time, I'm ashamed to say, but, um, and it's, uh, it's very good, very readable. Um, the first chapter, Atheism, its definition, history and growth. Then he goes on to the implications of atheism, life without God uh, and the universe from nothing and denying God. And I mean, it covers all of, all of this uh, um, and it's in a very readable way. So I do actually uh, strongly recommend that to people who want uh, a, a, good, a good entry level introduction to these issues that, that offers quite, I think, quite persuasive arguments and answers to many of these issues. Yeah, and, and uh, I believe Hamza thought this is doing a revised edition soon. Um, so look out for that as well. But he has a fantastic chapter on uh, on he calls it i think the theodicy the problem of, of evil in there and islam has a very rigorous answer for this and it is that people are trialed in different ways in life some by extreme wealth that in and of itself is a trial uh being in positions of power and responsibility aren't something they're actually things that you're held accountable for and again how you deal with your suffering is also something um all things that we encounter in life are avenues through which we can um, gain proximity to Allah. I think that's a, a basic idea that permeates Islamic thought. And so when you are suffering, well, who can you turn to and who can you supplicate to and who can you ask? You can ask uh, God. And, and often suffering, I mean, there are many different reasons people suffer, like I said, broadly. It can be to uh, get rid of one's sins, for example. God uses it as a, as a method right. to remove one's sins. But it's also, it's a reminder because humans, you know, I've experienced myself, we, we can become very forgetful very quickly. Mm. Uh, we're yeah. far more likely to pray when we need something yeah. than uh, when we're doing very well. And yeah. so life's ups and downs, the, the necessary peaks and troughs uh, are built into the human condition to make sure that we return to God in some ways. Broadly, how I would say you can categorize suffering. But you're absolutely right. <clears throat> there are a group of people, particularly now, often people who aren't themselves suffering. It seems to be... <laughs> I like that. Yes. Yeah. The people who are doing really well in life or approximately well in developed countries and, you know, not the ones who, who necessarily pray to God, but the ones who observe calamities and atrocities elsewhere, do have a very emotional rejection of the idea of God based upon the fact that there is evil in the world. Um, and this is a kind of mental block that people struggle to get past. Mm -hmm. But again, it, I, I emphasize, it's not the people who are suffering, it's those who are actually reasonably comfortable and observe suffering and a lot of su i mean some suffering exists in my opinion for example so that we can aid those people who are suffering it's a mean it's a personal means for us to get closer to god to help the people who are suffering and also the people who are suffering to turn to god themselves so it, yeah it's a multifaceted issue and i think people simplify it far too much and i think there's a wonderful phrase that hamza uses in the book um 
which is uh, humans have a pixel and God has the entire picture. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, when we have this kind of egocentric lens of the world, we ask these questions like, why me? Why is this happening? Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But often, uh, I'm not sure if it's Descartes who said it, but he said, um, life uh, only makes sense looking backwards, but you can only yeah. do it going forwards. I think something. Like yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. something along those lines can be applied to certain types of suffering. Again, mm. there are answers for, for natural disasters, et cetera scholars far more adequately than me could phrase but you're right it is an issue it's an issue i encountered but i encountered it in a slightly different way uh but we can touch upon that later if you want yeah i'm often struck by the islamic perspective which is, which is actually shared by traditional christians uh less so in the churches today however for some reason um it is very much centered around god's perspective and the eschaton the end times mm. death uh resurrection heaven and hell and the justice that comes on the, the day of, of judgment where uh wrongs will be righted and justice will be seen to be done very publicly so great great evil that happens in this life thinking of like you know certain events during the second world war for example don't go unpunished they don't get they're not lost to 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 justice um and, and that that's quite we have we have confidence in god that, that not one not uh, what not one iota not one atom uh, of, of evil or good will be overlooked and, and things will be all right in the end um but because we don't have a lively sense of the afterlife anymore in the west uh, we've kind of lost that dimension which is really central i think to getting a, a really proper perspective on everything mm. uh, if we're just focusing on the junior all the time we're not going to see the bigger picture which is much more uh, significant i think Definitely. Um, okay, well, moving on from from um, suffering, I, I was I was uh, I mentioned this to you before. I was speaking to uh, a medical doctor recently, a friend of mine, um, and he told me um, of the central guiding principle of medical ethics. So this, this doctor friend is um, a director of uh, is involved in sexual health, uh, you know, treating people who who are sick. And he said the central principle is moral autonomy. This is the official medical ethics. Uh, the idea that is my body, my choice, um, that no one can tell me what to do with my life. And this is so particularly in the area of sexual health and ethics. And um, you know, obviously there are lots and lots of problems with this. You know, if, if I'm a married man and I, I fall around and then I inadvertently infect my wife, who's not falling around, you know, there are innocent victims of my egregious behavior. So there's not much autonomy there. We're, we're connected to uh our family our relatives and so on um but uh how big an issue is that particularly because islam the, the very meaning of the word islam is submission submission to our creator so there is a fundamental clash is there not between these two worldviews uh, and obviously we inhabit one as a society but we are called to another very different way of life yeah absolutely it's and it kind of comes back to the point we made right at the beginning the uh clash within the human being between uh what we should do and what we would like to do and moral autonomy perhaps is what we would like to do and and where does that really come from in the modern world it's well feelings what do we feel like doing and desires are a big part of that uh, and it seems to me that I, I suppose a lot of existentialist thought for example was the kind of ad hoc justification of one's desires mm. through philosophical argumentation uh, it's a really rigorous way of demonstrating that i would like to do this and i should be able to do this mm. uh, and this is the best thing that's for me but i don't think that third statement necessarily follows uh, and islam 
is in the and I guess it's a great struggle of life is that you should eat broccoli and not chocolate and and things like this these kind of very obvious statements but they just don't sit well within us uh, and and this is really the battle between the lower self and the kind of the, the the soul or the higher self we have these kind of animal desires but we also have this ability to transcend those uh, and go through them not all desires are bad and, and um, adequately satisfying them in the way that God has taught us to is also a means uh, to gain proximity to Allah but uh, indulging in them left right and center and justifying it to ourselves really only makes us in a way a slave to our desires if that makes mm. sense. I suppose a servanthood is an unavoidable fact of life there are certain things that you will submit to um, numerous as they are in the world now they could be wealth yeah. they could be ones Yes. Uh, appetites for certain things, um, vanity, etc. And I think, you know, I've taken this from Hamza, who has taken this from uh, from uh, Alama Iqbal, the great poet of, of the East. He said the, this one uh, kind of submission or bowing that you do to your Lord prevents you from a thousand other bowings and submissions. Mm. You know, yeah. so this, this yeah. singular submission to uh, Allah and his commands actually frees you from the million other things you could be doing uh, which are bad for you yes. and now I always like to say Paul one can we can always debate about what the best thing to do is uh, you know uh, you could bring me some evidence to say donuts are actually good for you and I could say on the other hand Paul that running 5k a day is good for you but until one tries these things or is in the presence of people who have embodied these ways of thinking uh, and ways of being particularly because again knowledge is one thing abstract knowledge but incorporating that into your daily practice mm. is a uh, true kind of knowledge and wisdom comes about by observing and being in the company of these people and that's how you can very clearly start to see what the most appropriate way to live life is. I'm not a pragmatist in any way, and I don't think the truth is simply the most, the best thing for one. But mm. I think the human being responds uh, very viscerally and in a very, I mean, to use the word fitra, in a very uh, primordial way to certain states of being. Uh, and those are embodied by the people who, in my opinion, have really uh, encapsulated the essence of Islam within themselves and that means that they do not have moral auto autonomy in the sense that they derive their morality from themselves they take it from Allah and they submit to Allah and there's a, a serenity and a bliss that he imparts upon them that you can't get from um, endeavors in the material world yeah I think you hit a really important point there the idea if I've if I've understood you correctly the idea of having good wholesome uh, companionship company friends who uh, hopefully will be uh, further down the path than one is oneself that one can look up to and uh, learn from and they embody they they model um, what it is to be uh, you know God willing a, a good Muslim in terms of praying regularly uh, you know um, custody of the eyes and you know, not uh, and be uh, speech and uh, and, and all the other uh, virtuous acts and, and obligations that we have to undertake, as, uh, uh, people have to undertake as Muslims. And I think that's really, really important because then you're part of a company of people. You're, you're doing it as a social 
group and that's a much more human experience than solitarily uh going going through life which can be uh really challenging most definitely most definitely Okay, well, um, the, the other um, elephant in the room, which we must briefly touch on, I guess, is um, the problem uh, that many people have with uh, science. Um, um, so without perhaps going into all of the issues, because uh, you discussed many of these before uh, in your previous uh, uh, discussion on blogging theology. Thank you for that. But are, are there one or two issues uh, in your experience that uh, young Muslims particularly have with with the, the many the big the huge field that is science and the one or two particular issues that keep on coming up and, and uh, troubling people do you think yeah there are a few i think actually the biology tends to be the field that gets the most uh kind of sticky when it comes to religious thinking mm -hmm. um, because it has been the endeavor of scientists the, the majority of scientists in the post-Enlightenment West, where Christianity has gone out of favour and the idea of God has gone out of favour, to promote paradigms which could exist without the necessary, necessary being of a creator. Uh, and so something like evolution pops up quite frequently, especially at an early age. I think later on, if you're actually a rigorous scientist or you've actually looked at evolution in a more sophisticated fashion you see that it's really a a narrative constructed with bits of evidence but it's not it's not fact in the same way or to the same degree that or any scientific truth has a, um, a degree of uncertainty in it but it's not nearly as concrete as people would like you to believe if i was to recommend I mean, recommending a book in general. Mm. See Without Shaw is actually a fantastic book about traditional Sunni Islam. Mm. Uh, but the author himself was a convert uh, to Islam. His name is Nuha Mimkela. He's quite famous in America. And uh, he, de he devoted uh, a chapter on certain issues that come up. He also talks about the problem of evil. And he, he mentioned things like evolution and science in general. Uh, he he makes some fantastic points which is that it's almost like you can take evolution as a lens and mm. make a number of things fit to it but it actually doesn't fit as well as people would like you to believe or in the way that they like you to believe the idea of random mu mutations over uh, long periods of time creating complexity of being and mm. even then along the way there are kind of biologically miraculous moments such as just the commencement of life from inanimate matter life mm. coming from non-life um, and so these narratives can be manipulated uh, to influence young people and and any any the, the public and anyone involved in science particularly around ideas such as evolution and like I said there are people who study this far more in depth than I have but I, I recommend a few of those chapters to mm. people that's one thing. Why don't you say what you then? Uh, you, perhaps you can uh, after give me uh, the details, and I'll link to it in the description below. Yes. So you can all click on it and have a read. So thank you. Definitely. Okay. So um, is it just evolution? Any anything else in science that troubles? Um, I, I, it's not specific topics, but rather the way science is taught. We've mentioned this before, mm. but you know, science is now devoid of uh, any kind of understanding of what science is. We we understand that it's very useful and pragmatic mm -hmm. and it 
is able to produce all these wonderful things for us, uh, me and you would not be able to communicate without modern science as we are, for example. But you have to understand that there does not necessarily have to be a, a conflict between scientific thought and religious thought. And especially in Islam, it's not been the case traditionally. Um, science is like anything, it's a tool and it can get, it can be used in the manner to which um, those people wielding it wish to, you know, you can, you can make science look the way you would like it to look, mm. uh, depending on what your worldview is. Uh, and you can make actually science a lot more beautiful and it is very beautiful. In fact, you almost have to, you almost have to make it devoid of beauty to make it devoid of God. When you look at the fine tuning of the universe, when you simply observe something like the Northern Lights or like your kind of hashtag no design post, Paul, it takes an incredible kind of counterintuitiveness mm. and not an intellectual counterintuitiveness, but a kind of primordial appreciation of beauty, yeah. Yeah. counterintuitiveness to yeah. go, no, no, actually this does not have any purpose. This yeah. is not made with any purpose. It is, it seems to be we draw the line specifically at that point where the notion of God could come in because we want to and almost counterintuitively rather than just, you know, taking our intuition all the way. Uh, but this is, again, the outcome of, like you've mentioned a few times, Immanuel Kant in particular and his, you know, his critique of pure reason and, you know, his really, you know, a really interesting figure in general. But reading about his thinking and denouncing kind of logic as being able to confirm the existence of God anyway. Uh, this is the kind of the mess, if you'd like to call it that, that we, we've encountered in the thinking since. But like I like to say, it's this kind of treating science as absolute and ev everything else as wishy-washy. Whereas really, if you scrutinized something like Hadith or Quranic um, kind of uh recitation or or the principles of sharia or even at kalam with the same s scrutiny that you uh do with science you could actually i believe achieve a high degree of certainty of faith in these things than you do in science but mm. we just don't like to do that because mm. it then means perhaps believing in god and doing what god says and you know it's a bit hard yeah. I mean, there, there are some famous philosophers and others in America are leading in public intellectuals who made it publicly clear that they don't want God to exist. Yeah. I mean, it's not that they've looked at the evidence and weighed it up. They, they, they are personally hostile to the notion mm. of, of God existing, uh, and that accounts for their atheism. And, and that, and that uh, I think, in, 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 from the perspective of the Quran, would be a, a kufr. You're covering over the truth uh, quite deliberately. It's not like you don't know it. You just don't want it to be there. Um, so that's quite quite disturbing that people say that. Um, perhaps moving on then to um, another, uh, I'm going to ask you if it is an issue, that, that is possible misunderstandings of Islam. Um, now, of course, our society, the West, is awash with um, misunderstandings about Islam. Difficult to know where to start. But are, are there are there any particular issues, maybe to the Sharia? I mean, we've obviously spoken of the problem of evil, but misunderstandings. So there's wrong ideas about Islam that, yeah. that people have. And even people who are Muslim may have wrong mm. ideas. It doesn't mean Muslims are suddenly infallible because they're Muslims. Um, is that an issue? Definitely. Uh, actually, I... I hadn't thought about it, but 
they kind of they do still fall under the philosophical group of denouncers, I suppose, but they're more uh, they're less concerned with metaphysical things and they're more concerned with moral issues or moral philosophical issues mm. so you've had fantastic people on like justin parrott talk about slavery for example mm. um slavery comes up particularly right. certain right. types of slavery involving uh women's and uh, and concubines for example right. yes That's, i once knew uh, a female acquaintance who was from a muslim family but she said oh there is uh, sexual slavery in Islam and therefore I don't want to be Muslim um, without perhaps having taken the necessary understanding of what that conceptualization of slavery was and yes. it seems to be that we inherit a certain way of thinking in the West uh, growing up in the West and we subject all other uh, forms of knowledge or traditions Yes. to these inherited lenses, I would call them. So yeah. we have a conception of slavery as it is, or it has been in the kind of transatlantic slave trade, mm. uh, which was a massive atrocity. Yeah. Um, and we still see the ramifications of that today. Uh, and then we project I, I, it exactly. I, I, of course, because that's my one of my favorite books, Slavery and Islam by Professor Jonathan Brown, uh, who's a professor in the States himself as, as a Muslim. But this is an outstanding work of scholarship it covers everything you mentioned concubines and alleged sexual slavery and what is slavery uh and looking at other religions as well it looks at judaism and christianity um and this was a, a real feast re reading this absolute eye-opener completely revolutionized my understanding of the whole subject um so uh if you want a really meaty uh, uh explanation of the the facts the historical facts from a top scholar but also you mentioned justin parrott's um discussion on blogging theology or the same subject and that that is a great sort of youtube version a, yeah. a more concise version of, of the same issues and, and both of these guys of course are converts to islam uh, themselves yes and and um i mean firstly some actually most of my favorite scholars are converts because they've done a lot of the unthinking necessary to do for someone growing in the growing up in the west i call it unthinking or unlearning your inherited thinking yeah. Um, another book that I came across. I, I, call, I call it deprogramming. That's my favorite. Okay, that's uh, good. I, I said becoming a Muslim is like deprogramming yourself from all the all the crap that's been thrown at you, and you start believing in some solid truths. But um, that's my. Yeah. Sorry, you were saying about. No, that's it. fine. Another book, I suppose, which actually led me away from Islam. I read it when I was sixteen, and looking back, it was quite damaging to my understanding of religion in general. Was *Sapiens* mm. by Noah Harari. Yuval Noah Harari, I believe his name is. Yeah. yeah. Um, and in that book. Oh, yes. Sorry. That, that. Yes. Sorry. He. Yeah. That, that's it. Because. Yeah. So I, I suddenly clicked which book you're referring to. Someone actually recommended a Muslim recommended I read that because it's like you know Barack Obama recommended it. It was like you know. Yeah. A, a book. I never got around to reading it, and then I read a kind of review of it, and I thought, no, I'm not going to read this book. You know, it's just <laughs> it's a very clear perspective which I've come across a million times before. Uh, yeah, really beneficial. Exactly, and so the modern way of viewing, I guess, you have things like critical theory, etc., mm. uh, and the modern way of viewing society as a clash between certain groups and etc. etc. and the manipulation of those in power over those who aren't in power uh, which is a, a narrative that you can project onto history but if you project project it onto religion for example then this is what harari uh, did in his book and then 
he you start to suppose and this is what i did that religion is was a very sophisticated invention uh to manipulate and control the masses in order not necessarily in a malicious way but in a way such that people could live harmoniously with uh, common moral uh prerogatives uh and i i inherited this idea at 16 when i wasn't quite equipped to see the fallacies in his narrative um uh because he had a very materialist and he is an atheist uh a kind of worldview and he wanted people to absorb that so he constructed this narrative to basically say that religion is merely an extension of um the human's ability to abstract and using abstractions and beliefs in kind of extra mental things like limited liability companies and then basically said religion is like this just to control people and made this massive leap without explaining much of his thinking that's a very old trope uh, and yeah. hardly original to him i've come across that no um i mean i know there's a bit of a, a bit of a side point is maybe it's my hobby horse but i'm, I'm actually fascinated by things like near-death experiences and out-of-body mm. experiences at that time and, and um i was just reading um i came across as a, a professor at university of california who was speaking about this but um a paper was published on the um the, the american uh, medical library website this is the united States official government website uh, for the, the the medical library of America, um, a peer-reviewed academic article, and I read the abstract. It was due to near-death experiences written by a couple of academics, saying that um, there was now evidence. This is their, their term that um, a number of near-death experiences are true. That uh, in this, in a particular sense, uh, that that is now a commonplace has been observed and reported numerous times. That many people report when they say they've had a heart attack and that they're, they're the heart's no longer functioning and their, their brain is stopped functioning and so on. But they're ultimately revived somehow because of medical science. But they report leaving the body, that their spirit, their soul, their nafs, whatever you want to call it. And, and from a certain point in the room above their body, they're able to observe what's going on here, observe uh, in incredible detail. In fact, their their awareness is uh, is super acute. They're super aware, and so they're revived ultimately, obviously. And they 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 mention these details, what they've seen and heard, which is impossible, by the way. It's impossible for them to have seen and heard this, and it's now being corroborated. There's so much of this gone on. This is now being established as actually happened because there's no other way to explain it, particularly when you get people who are born blind whose only experience of this is during death, if I can put it that way, um, who then accurately report afterwards that they saw the, the surgeon do this and they had this conversation and then the surgeon did this. Oh, that was an unusual thing. I didn't expect them to do that. And this all happened. It's real. And yet their eyes are tapered. They're, 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 there's no pulse. There's nothing. And and so this has now gone mainstream uh, where the U.S. government's now publishing this research. They're not fanfaring it. It's just, hey, it happened. It's been researched. Yes, it's real. It's been verified. It happens. But the consequences of this for our materialist worldview, and this is my real interest, is that we have to move beyond materialism, it seems now, into kind of post a post-materialist paradigm, which can... Uh, take on board these extraordinary aspects of what it is to be human that that uh, uh, that the mind is not just a product of the brain that somehow is um, Not identical and separatable at some points in our lives And I just throw that in as as you get these curious what I call signals of transcendence that kind of peep through the holes of our of our materialist civilization and kind of oh that shouldn't be happening if, if materialism is true that can't have happened, but it did happen 
So maybe we, we are ripe, longer ripe, for a change in our zeitgeist. But that's just my humble opinion. But I don't want to. Uh, but that's my contribution to, to that. Um, I just want to say, if people want to um, look at this much further in a more theoretical way, um, in terms of living as a Muslim in the West, the Quran and the secular mind, a philosophy of Islam, will give you lots of intellectual insights uh, and perspectives rooted in the Quran, how it sees um, secularism um, and the secular mind, and how the Quran answers this at a philosophical, intellectual level. Uh, for me, that's one of the best books I've ever read. And I keep on plugging it, but I'm going to carry on plugging it. Sorry. Yeah. No, no. Um, some really, I like segues because it means uh, I can remain in, interested in, well, invested in the conversation because I only know a little about a few things. So when you mention those things and I can say you're something. You're so modest, sir. You're so uh, modest. But the, what you mentioned there is really interesting about materialism in general and i think the reason that we cling to materialism despite it being very counterintuitive if one considers the primacy of consciousness and how magical consciousness itself is okay. um the reason we cling to it is because it serves our desires very well and the right. human being is more usually more engaged by desires than it is by uh, rationale mm. uh, and so in a materialist worldview, the point of life is to uh, remove as much suffering as you can and indulge in much, as much pleasure as you can, whilst for some people, if you're considered moral, doing as little harm as possible. So broadly speaking, that's how you should live your life. And materialism is a very convenient way uh, to do that without any hard um, kind of moral uh, values that you have to adhere by. But if you're speaking about we're going to have a post-materialist world, I meet an astonishing number of people who convert to Islam, or even if they don't, they look at a lot of, a lot of Eastern traditions, whether it be Taoism or Buddhism in many di diluted forms. I myself read Eckhart Tolle, Power of Now, when I was like 20 or something. I thought it was pretty good. But it's a very apparently, it's, if you ask an actual person from the east apparently it's a very diluted rubbish version oh, of it is yeah so, my idea of californian buddhism it has <laughs> nothing to do with actual buddhism at all it's it's been repackaged for yeah in, in america but mm. there is some kind of yearning within the human being which is obviously addressed in the islamic narrative uh that we are destined for something greater than simply our desires uh we mm. have this capacity to uh transcend life's difficulties and pleasures uh, and find some kind of serenity that Allah bestows upon us, not by ourselves, but by the grace of God. Uh, and this, I, you say a post-materialist world, I think it'll be a kind of revival. It'll be a kind of reversion rather than something new. Uh, these, the same, they say the same 35 questions have been asked by human beings since human beings have been around. And I have not found to this day a more comprehensive answer for those questions and the Islamic uh, tradition mm. in its entirety. 
I think, I think the word there is, is comprehensive. It, it, it's, it is. that There are certainly really good answers in Christianity and Judaism mm -hmm. and other religions. They have facets of the truth, uh, clearly. But, but Islam, for sheer comprehensiveness, I mean, at every level, it is, it is, I think, unique in today's world anyway. Um, but part of its appeal, that it offers a convincing uh, way of life that leads to human flourishing and success in, in, in this life and, inshallah, in the, in the life to come. Uh, in a way that it's just, uh, and the technology, if you like, that Islam possesses, uh, the ethics, uh, the, the commands, the uh, the advice in the Quran and the Sunnah, um, is quite extraordinary, uh, actually. And it's really underappreciated, obviously, in the West, goes without well, saying. Well, even by us, even by us. We've lost uh, touch with our tradition uh, in in the world in a in a world in the West where tradition is sneered at and mocked at, there's something to be deconstructed as quickly as possible, and uh, and something that shackles you. Actually, people have uh, have lost the value of what tradition has to offer, uh, and and I, being an adherent to the Sunni tradition, have found it to be immense. I mean, infinitely deep, as Allah is infinitely vast. The the blessings that can be bestowed upon you once you try and do something on the path this is a really good point because i mean maybe it was just me but when i was a christian when i say i was a christian i mean i was a, a real christian a practicing believing christian um not just a cultural one um when i first encountered islam one of the things that genuinely surprised me was precisely what you've just said it is i was, I was aware in the christian tradition of the mystics like um eckhart and others you know the depths and, and the riches of christian spirituality but boy there's not you know it, it's there in, in islam at, at least as great in, in in certain mystical sufi dimensions or whatever but that their richness and profundity is there so i felt not only did islam offer some uh, some convincing, compelling truths about the nature of God. You know, he's a Tawheed rather than Trinity, shall we say. But it also offered this spiritual depth, which I really didn't expect to see in Islam. And and that's one of the great secrets that's unknown in the West. Not a secret. It's one of the things that's not appreciated in the West. And maybe even some Muslims don't appreciate it. As well, well, I think actually in the last couple of hundred years, we've attacked our own tradition ourselves perhaps hmm. and the west as well and even you mentioning a term like sufi paul you're probably going to get a bunch of nasty comments maybe uh or, or maybe even lose some some listeners but if people understand the the richness of the tradition and where it comes from and that it's firmly rooted in our tradition on based on the quran and the sunnah um yeah. it's it's really actually i think the highest degree of certainty you can have and this is what the mystics used to say, that there's a dhulki, kind of t a taste of certainty. That the I'm actually reading a paper by Hassan Spiker, who you had on. Oh, gosh. Wow. Uh, yes. You know, which is very difficult to read. Uh, but fantastic yeah, yeah. if you give it the time. He's yeah, talking yeah. about the nafs al-amr, or, or the reality of things in and of themselves. And uh, Ibn Arabi said that the mind is only capable, I believe it's Ibn Arabi, correct me if i'm wrong but the mind's only capable of kind of doing logic with that which it has sensed either extramentally or through the senses and the greatest kind of the greatest philosophy one can do is when you have this kind of uh, i don't want to use enlightenment because that's kind of a butchered buddhist kind of term but this experience one has direct gnosis you could say gnosis at that term mm -hmm. um uh and that is the uh, ultimate endeavor in life and the ultimate felicity or bliss one can have this kind of ihsan uh, this excellence yeah. one can achieve 
Uh, and actually, sorry, Paul, I know you're going to say something, but I've been reading. Say something. Don't worry. Carry on. <laughs> I've been reading this collection oh. of books. Oh, exemplars of our time. Yeah, huh? It's okay. uh, published by Michael Sugic or, or produced by Michael Sugic and Peter Sanders, who are two. Uh, one's a writer and one's a photographer. Both became Muslim, I think, about 40, 40, 50 years ago now. Contemporaries of people like Hamza Yusuf, for example, and um, it is it was written for the sole purpose of um, showing that the saint saints still exist within Islam. Uh, and the book I mentioned before, which we'll link, See Without Shore, is actually a path. Uh, it's about the Shadili path, which is one of the main tariqahs of Sufism, main paths mm-hmm. of Sufism. This this is extraordinary. It's very. It's a short collection of books Gosh. On, on eight saints uh, written by people who knew them personally. Wow. Um, I was reading one recently now about Sufi uh, Abdullah Khan, who was a prominent... Uh, uh, saint in in he came from Pakistan, but he he came to Birmingham in the fifties, mm. uh, and the Gumkol Sharif Mosque in Birmingham is the mosque that he founded. But if you read the stories of these people, honestly, I can't see how you wouldn't be moved. I was brought to tears just reading. It's only about a twenty page, thirty page booklet, but wow. you read about the lives of these people, mm-hmm. and you know you, that kind of english phrase the proofs in the pudding you are yeah. moved you are moved by their humility and their ability to serve human beings and their their love their affection for their creator and this kind of it seems like to me at least especially when i read about the prophet peace be upon him that human beings themselves are incapable fundamentally incapable of this level of greatness if Allah does not bless them and give them openings. It's not possible for one to be selfless to this extent. The loss of ego these people have. And I know that in other traditions, this is mentioned in Sea Without Shore, that in other traditions, uh, you know, you mentioned Meister Eckhart uh, Mm. and and people like Thomas Aquinas and Mother Teresa, for example, saints of their traditions. But the the number and the, the continuation of sainthood in Islam, for me, is one of the great proofs of it. A kind of a human proof, a direct proof. Uh, if anyone picks this, I, you it won't go amiss. Like if you pick this up and just read about these people, another recommendation um, is Heart's Turn by Michael Sugic. It's a collection of short stories about people who are really far away from Islam and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala kind of brought them back. Oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah, I'd like to, yeah, maybe you can send me the link to that. And I will do. And these books, really, these show you the strength of tradition um, because uh, again, our modern sentimentalities hate hierarchy, hate adherence, mm. hate actually submitting to someone. Uh, not in a not in a total sense, only to Allah, of course, but learning from someone with greater knowledge than you and being in their company. Uh, and this idea that the individual is primary is not something in our tradition. And there's there the conflict arises between the tradition and the and the modern conceptions of, of certain Islamic thought. But this collection of books, sorry, I'm rambled, but I'm really passionate about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really enjoy each one I read. Um, and Sufi Abdullah Khan, if you want to look him up, was a, he's someone in Britain for the British listeners. Um, and all of these people actually passed away recently uh, because they did not want the fame. This is how remarkable they are. They didn't want the fame that came with being written about or pictures being taken of them. So mm-hmm. only posthumously would they have allowed 
uh, people to write about their lives in such a way yeah. uh, because they only believed in doing things for the sake of Allah, not for fame or worldly gain or such things. So, so yes, sorry. I've, no, no, that, that's just one. Thank you very much for those recommendations. I, I think you mentioned um, at one point uh, the controversial nature of me mentioning the word Sufism. And I I, I think I want to clarify what I mean by that. I'm, uh, for me, the, the term is just a word and there is a spectrum, quite a mm. broad spectrum of beliefs and practices and spiritualities that go under this umbrella term. And so I'm far from um, endorsing everything that goes on under that name. Some yeah. things, in my opinion, as a layman who knows little, uh, would appear to me uh, as wrongly as haram. They're, they're just unacceptable. Uh, but some things do fall within um, the, the, the the sunnah and are, are fine. And I, I remember reading um, uh, Ibn Taymiyyah, of all people, mm. of this. Uh, and, um, you know, he, he, he was he was fine if Sufi practices were within the sunnah, within the, the, the law, as he called it. Um, no problem with them. Um, it's only when they transgress and go beyond the divine parameters of what is permissible, and I won't go into what those issues are, it's a different subject, then it becomes really dodgy. So I'm not endorsing anything that goes under, under the name of Sufi, uh, but only those things that are conformable within uh, the, the Quran and the Sunnah completely. And then that's fine because yeah. it's an emphasis on the interior self-purification, on one's relationship with the divine, uh, and so on. That, that That is obviously very, very good and, and, and part of Islam itself. It's not something brought into Islam. No. And uh, it's really interesting what you mentioned. The greatest critique uh, critics of the Sufis were the Sufis themselves. Mm. Um, a, a fantastic. It's only trying very retract that. Say that, but Hamza Yusuf. I'm uh, the Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, also a Sufi yes. uh, guy himself. Yeah, I've seen him on video. And it wasn't that quite that long ago. Saying criticizing Sufis today for not doing that. He says today yeah, Sufis exactly. don't criticize themselves. Yes. They criticize so-called Wahhabis and. Yeah. You know, which is an appalling term, uh, but um, and so they don't. They precisely don't do that now, and and that was uh, uh, he's coming from within that tradition, saying it's completely unacceptable the way Sufis, most Sufis behave, well, many Sufis yeah. behave today. So what you're saying is the kind of the best practice, perhaps at another time. Yeah, and and living up, he's living up to the tradition again by pointing out yes the flaws of his contemporaries, and I completely yes. agree. Um, in Sea Without Shore, there's a there's a point in the book where. Um, Nuham Imkala is about to get married and he asks his sheikh for some blessing and he's uh, from the Shadili Tariqah and um, the, his potential spouse who later becomes his wife he says oh she's from a Naqshbandi sheikh and his sheikh says that's fine the Naqshbandis are like us they haven't innovated everything they have is derived from the Quran and Sunnah they aren't like some other groups so you're completely right Paul uh, and it still happens in the modern world of course we don't endorse all things under an umbrella term but we also Similarly, you know, if we expand it to religion, just because some religions are false does not logically mean that all religions are false. Yes. Yeah. I mean, on this point, I, I mentioned this to a, a Salafi uh, brother, friend, friend of mine, a, a very wonderful man in many ways, about the because he he, he um, has tended to go along with just condemning Sufism, um, and I said, well, you know, there's a spectrum, and some things are within the Sufism, and he he said, yes, that was the case. But his argument was not to use the term because, in his view, the coinage had been so corrupted, in his view, uh, by abuse and misuse that we could no longer use that. You can no longer affirm Sufism. So he didn't never use it. He never spoke positively. Because it, um, but my, my view is different in that 
you know, we can we can have some discrimination discernment in this, and we can say some of it's good and some of it's not so good. Uh, like many things in life, we don't have to have a blanket rejection. And I think that yeah. blanket rejection, and I understand why he's doing it, is to mm -hmm. do with the way the word is understood in some people's minds. But I still think perhaps can't we work harder to try and express ourselves? You know what we really mean when we say Sufism, and I think we can do that. Yeah, I, I don't want to. I mean, labour the point, especially because I know uh, I don't want to turn people off either. I I have many friends who are from uh, who are who ascribe themselves to be Salafi or Salafi Hanbali or Hanbali yeah. Athari, um, and many of them have indeed I would say you know better character than me and have memorised more Quran and Sunnah etc. Uh, I don't I'm not here to attack groups because it's not my position to do so. It was simply to say that I have personally been moved. By the stories of these uh, yep. pious predecessors, you could say, to coin yep. that term, uh, and I think Islam is something that affects the heart as well as even more than affecting the intellect. One can appreciate the kalam cosmological argument, but it won't make you want to be Muslim necessarily. Well, good uh, but, yeah, but if you if you read about these uh, sages and saints, uh, it can affect your heart, and the heart is, I believe, where the openings come from and, and when one can start to turn back towards Allah. So that was all I was saying was right. uh, that we shouldn't simply disregard people because of a, a label that they have inherited, uh, perhaps some Orientalists or or kind of parts of the world, other other thinkers and such. Just give the you know, read about their lives, see what they were able to do and mm -hmm. and see how what amazed me was like you mentioned, Paul, some people have a perception that if someone uh, has been labelled a Sufi that they're somehow a bit, f you know, fragrant and flagrant with the Sharia. They don't really, you know, yeah. they might do a bit of this and a bit of that. But when mm -hmm. I read Sea Without Shore and I read about these people's lives, they uh, adhere to the Sharia more strictly than anyone else. In fact, they are harsher on themselves by definition than they are on any of their followers. And for them to err is not even to do something that God does is displeased by but simply to forget about him for a moment and so this level of um kind of practice that they have of the sharia i just wanted to point out that you know it doesn't it's not that narrative isn't necessarily true mm -hmm. now, i think it's helpful we're talking about you know advice to muslim youth and i think this is relevant because that there can be a, a sectarian ethos in the way well i'm now with this particular group of people no i'm with this particular group of people uh and, and you know a bit of mistrust uh, mm. uh, the two and i guess it's understandable and and you know, one can learn things from different groups as well it's not the end of the world but i think ultimately you know um well th th there is a, a nuance and a complexity to this and taking absolutist positions sometimes is not always uh, wise, although sometimes it is wise, of course, uh, particularly if you've got very modernist, uh, secular, yeah. liberal kind of groups yeah. of Muslims who basically want to Islamicize, as they would see it, the zeitgeist, um, that, that, you know, there's, there's no issues there. That's simply, you know, to, to be questioned quite thoroughly. I think a fantastic person who you actually kind of introduced me to, Paul, not directly, is Imam Tom uh, is it Fukini? I don't know how to pronounce yeah, his surname. Yeah, Italian name. Uh, yeah, yeah exactly. uh, He is someone I think who strikes that balance really well. Mm. If you listen to him again, someone who's trained a lot more than I have, mashallah, and I listen to him regularly. And mm. if you listen to the way he talks about dealing with such issues, and um, he's very, he's quite generalist, and he's very nice to listen to. Mm. Uh, 
he embodies good character and mm. he have a sound training uh allahu alam but i you know again listen to those types of people uh and and you know it, he made a very good point in a video i watched the other day which is the former dahibs are respected and they respect one another but you shouldn't go around bashing people on the head with it that you should be hanafi or shafi or maliki or hanbali and we are right and you are wrong and that's not what the sharia is about ibn taymiyyah himself said that if you are shafi maliki uh, hanbali or Hanafi, that you are on the Dean of Islam. Mm. Uh, so, again, we've, and it's a modern thing, isn't it, Paul? In, in certain ways, um, the, this clash of uh, whether it be a clash of classes or clash of genders, perhaps, or clash, mm. this kind of, not that there hasn't always been some kind of internal strife, but there was a harmony even between different religions in traditional Islamic civilization that was established that we're kind of struggling with at the moment, and that piques my interest as well. And if you can look for the things, perhaps, that bring us closer together and always have good conduct, I think, you know, sometimes I think people just start making personal attacks on people rather than trying to discuss politely uh, the, the, the idea, you know, the people become the idea and then you attack the person and then you get into dangerous territory. You might be offending God yourself by saying bad things mm -hmm. about a certain person directly mm. but anyway i think we've digressed i apologize no no digressing is, no, I, like you said earlier on digre digressing is good particularly as you now mentioned someone who have a huge amount of respect for imam tom as i call him uh he's been on blogging theology a few times talking about uh how wallach's book impossible state and another book and we're working through uh wallach's work it seems um which is amazing but you know, he, he's someone who is very well school trained at the university of medina i think mm -hmm. in, in saudi arabia um, and, and clearly is very erudite and very able to express complex ideas in simpler terms. Uh, he can summarize um, Wallach's work, uh, which I read some of it, and it is not easy to summarize, but he manages to do it uh, extremely well, I, I think. But also he has lots of he, incredible number of videos he's coming out with, and yeah. advice, advice on this and that and everything. You know, he's a generalist uh, in, in many ways, and the quality doesn't seem to be in any way diluted or... Uh, affected by that frequency um, and yeah I mean th th I recommend it to younger Muslims to watch him listen to him learn from him um, he's very accessible um, so I'm glad you mentioned him My so uh, in in conclusion um, I just wanted to say before I invite you perhaps to uh, conclude as we perhaps wrap up um, I had the privilege of interviewing Professor Linda Woodhead uh, several weeks ago she's a professor mm -hmm. at King's College uh, in London, one of Britain's most eminent sociologists of religion. Um, and uh, she was discussing the, the decline, the seemingly inexorable decline of the Christian faith in this country, in the UK, um, and religion in general, with the exception um, of two things. One is Islam, um, which uh, is not declining at all, on the contrary. Um, and one of the things she said about um, its appeal, uh, particularly to Muslim youth, um, and she said this, not me, it's her word. She says, Islam is cool, she said. I love it when these senior academics use this street language. Islam is cool. Um, you know, it's cool because of its fashion, its, its clothing, it's, you know, it, it's not establishment like the Church of England. You know, it's, it's, it's slightly risque, perhaps, in some people's eyes. But, you know, it, 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 it's uh, enjoying a, a huge amount of popularity, particularly British Muslims globally. They're, they're, you know, whether it be their food or their clothes or, or they, their 
music nasheeds whatever um and that's that's incredible and so that's one of the good news stories about muslim youth in this country is the sheer vitality of uh, islam uh, in all its manifestations in their lives um oh, the, the, the other thing that is having a, a not a revival but is beginning is um paganism of course it is, angel worship uh ouija board the witchcraft i kid you not i went into a major bookshop here in london the other day the witchcrafts is called witchcraft as well it's not me saying ah oh, it's witchcraft it really is witchcraft. the huge witchcraft section black magic white magic uh, oh my goodness me and i look for the you know the, the, the religion section it was much smaller and nearly all christian as well they basically ignored islam extraordinary um anyway yeah no i if you don't mind paul i know you like to keep the, your videos concise, which is good, but I, I'll perhaps share some reflections yeah, on what yeah, you do. I like, I like, well, one of my videos is four hours long. <laughs> uh, 50,000 views. So I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm cool with long videos, please. Um, two things. Mm. On Anecdotally, uh, a former acquaintance of mine uh, from school uh, told me at uh, a school five-year school reunion that they had decided to become a druid. Uh, and I was fascinated to learn about what druidism is and it's kind of this ancient celtic thing but it seems like you were saying a post-materialist world there's a yearning for something greater yep. uh, and that is in fact at oxford here alhamdulillah we've had so many converts uh a funny story the first day i went to the muslim prayer room uh i myself perhaps returning to the religion after a long time uh, i walked in into the wudu area and i see who is now one of my best friends he won't mind if i name him uh, Charlie, uh, and Charlie's uh, uh, kind of English-Spanish descent, but British, white. Uh, and I walked in and I saw him and I was a bit taken aback for a second because I was like, what's this guy doing here? This white uh, man doing it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But then he explained, not even explained, I watched him do Waddle and he did it better than me. So I was like, okay, I can learn something from him perhaps. And then the following year, Charlie had left because uh, he graduated. And I walk in for my first prayer of the year in the Muslim prayer room. And this time there's four seats and three of them are taken up by converts to Islam. Wow. Uh, um, and we've had many this year. Uh, so I, I, I've seen the anyway, effect. Sorry, there's a pause we just said there, as if it's just yeah. a throwaway comment. We've had many this year. Yeah. As if it was just, you know, really? Alhamdulillah. Yeah, yeah Alhamdulillah. In a place like Oxford, which is very secular and... Uh, mm. very kind of True. far removed from such things where you can almost be mocked at uh, kind of not openly but people look at you a bit funny if you say you believe in God in certain spaces um, and to see the number of people who have come to Islam uh, from really astonishing backgrounds uh, is remarkable and, and the breadth of people brothers sisters alike it's very encouraging it gives one hope uh, hearing about their stories revitalizes your, your own dean in many ways and you make great friendships uh, and and for those people who do consider islam i think the most powerful thing in all the stories the common thread tends to be either people were looking for some kind of real truth in life or they just had excellent muslim friends and those two things were compelling enough for them to look at the faith with sincerity again deprogram unlearn some of the false truths they've inherited uh, and alhamdulillah when you go to the deen uh, with sincerity uh, Allah doesn't leave you without an opening or, or an inclination towards it and these people took that and they've taken it very far uh, and 
And with regards to Islam being cool and things like that, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm no, not no, saying cool, by the way. I'm just no, quoting no, 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 no you're quoting, yeah, yes, of course. He's not a Muslim, uh, but, but you do see that uh, the number of young boys you'll see uh, in at Juma on Friday um, oh. is astonishing. Like they fill it up. I'm sure they do all sorts of other things that young boys do during the week, but they make sure their Friday prayer mm. is solidified you know they go in congregation they make sure no matter what else is going on in life this is something we establish and we maintain uh, and islam has this um this idea of returning to the faith even if you're not quite at your best we have ramadan once a year as a spiritual cleanser of sorts we have all these practices and we should never despair from the mercy of our lord uh, and know that you know it's not how your life begins but how it ends it really counts uh, oh, i like that is not yeah. how your life begins; it's how it ends that counts. That, that's, yeah. that's a great, that's a great saying. And uh, and we should always pray for a good end from Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala as well, um, because many people on the path have gone away, and but Alhamdulillah, more come onto the path, um, yeah. and and are revived. And the revitalization, astonishingly, has come from a place like Britain, which is mm. a very secular place right now. And mm. the reason is, in my humble non-academic anecdotal estimation so take it with a, a kind of a liter of salt if you will yeah, is yeah. we are f further along the line of seeing the consequences of a godless and materialist way of living than other places in the world because we advanced earlier and we abandoned the idea of god earlier yeah. um and as a reaction, the Muslims who have grown up here are aware of these shortcomings uh, mm. and aware of the things that come before you. And so many of them actually, alhamdulillah, become even more religious than their parents were and their grandparents exactly. were. Exactly. Because, that, that's because, that's yeah. 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 They're not, uh, they're not, some still are, don't get me wrong, uh, in any group, this is a generalization, but there mm. are those who I have seen uh, are not enamored by the um, the kind of things that materialism has to off, offer them so much. They're more invested in the spiritual, in learning Qur'an, in, uh, in, in reciting beautiful Qur'an and prayers in congregation. You'd be surprised, Paul, but at Oxford here in the prayer room, how often people would just in the prayer room chat say, uh, Maghrib Jama'at, half four, 15 brothers will be like, see you there, Alhamdulillah. Someone yeah. recites Qur'an and people come They'll cycle. We do fajr. We do fajr together uh, for those brothers who are able to make it. Um, and it's it's really beautiful. It's really beautiful to see the flourish, flourishing of the deen. And it's almost like this environment, this very secular environment, has allowed people to consolidate their deen in mm. what way is available to them. As a, it's, it's so clear, isn't it? It's yeah. not like is this murky or oh, you know what's that it is so clear yeah. you know, this secularism materialism devoid of any real lasting values or uh, all that and the alternative the richness of of, of uh, islam uh the, the, the darkness makes the light even clearer when yes. the light is there rather than kind of a murky gray where you can't work out what's going on so i, I think that, ironically un unintentionally i'm sure you know secularism has provided a boost to to islam in that sense to, to yes. people come the face i mean definitely and these are these kind of like we mentioned before these peaks and troughs don't even the human existence is kind of like um one of those uh what are they called fractals you know if you zoom out it's kind of it replicates mm -hmm. itself the 
the peaks and troughs that one experiences in our own life in terms of perhaps spiritual feeling or suffering or whatever human civilizations and human history also have has these peaks and troughs and i don't think we should ever despair that we're too far gone i think abdul hakim murad is someone uh, tim dr tim winter at cambridge you should uh, listen to if you're ever feeling like england or britain or where you're living is not a fruitful place for islam he's very adamant that uh, islam uh, is british has been british and can perhaps incorporate even more of britain um obviously within the it's very good, very good at talking like that yeah yes uh, almost unique actually okay well um but to draw it to a close uh Sakin, thank you so much for your time your insights and your expertise and i don't like to be called that but you you, you do have very um uh, robust insights into what's going on and uh, i'm glad we've end ended you've ended on a positive upbeat note which is not at all artificial. This is not like, you know, <laughs> this is real. This is what you said. Uh, you know, I've heard this before from many other places in London uh, about Muslim youth and so on. Uh, you go to the mosques here, they're packed and they're very youthful. And the dedication amongst young people very often is extraordinary. And, and it's so opposite of what you go to churches, for example. Uh, bless them, you know, uh, full of old ladies. Nothing wrong with old ladies. They're very good people. Um, but that's kind of it <laughs> with this very top heavy ecclesiastical structure on top. Islam is not like that. It's much more egalitarian. It, as you say, welcomes people in who are bruised uh, by life. Um, and there's a way to restore and purify and bring wholeness and life back to people. So it's all it's all good. So uh, anyway, thank you very much, Jackie, again for your time. Really appreciate it. And inshallah, I will see you in Oxford towards the end of the month. Inshallah, Paul. And I'd just like to, sorry, caveat by saying this is our second discussion and I mentioned it to you before, but they always say writing your second book or second album is much harder than the first. Yes. Uh, forgive me if there were any shortcomings in my explanation or anything that I said. And for those people in the comments, please try and focus on the positives of, of what I said and perhaps, again, forgive me for my shortcomings. And and uh, it's always a pleasure, Paul. I doubt I have much more to add now. This is perhaps even a stretch. Uh, but but thank you so much. All right, that was, you're most welcome. All right, uh, we'll, we'll leave it there until next time. Thank you.